This is WJCT News 89.9 in Jacksonville. Opinions expressed on the First Coast Week in Review are those of our panelists and do not necessarily reflect the views of WJCT News 89.9. Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and on this sunny Friday, it's time for our first Coast Week in Review. We're going to be talking about some surprise testimony at a JEA hearing, what's next for the fire-ravaged Rise Doro, the ouster of the city's affordable housing chief, and the state's continued crackdown on transgender residents. To talk about all that and more, I'm joined now by Jacksonville Business Journal editor Tim Gibbons, Florida Times Union reporter Alexandra Mansfield, Jacksonville Free Press editor Sylvia Perry, and First Coast News anchor and reporter Rich Donnelly. Thanks, you all, for being here. Good to be here. Good morning. Thanks for having us. And we're also joined just for a short while by Metro columnist Nate Monroe, who's on the line. Good morning, Nate. Good morning, Ann. Nate, kick us off here. You've been covering the JEA scandal for years. The federal corruption case um, is headed to trial in just a couple weeks with two former JEA executives charged with conspiracy and fraud. But something pretty dramatic happened during a pretrial hearing this week. What was it? Yeah, so uh, we, we've been getting uh, kind of a, a very unusual preview of the trial uh, that we're all going to get to watch in a couple of weeks. Um, and so the, the court has been vetting a lot of testimony from witnesses that the government plans to call a trial. Uh, and on Wednesday, uh, one of those witnesses, uh, a person named Steve Amder, he was a private attorney who worked with JEA during the privatization effort. He testified that in the course of a private phone conversation he had with, with Aaron Zahn, JEA's former CEO, Zahn told him that were he successful in privatizing the agency, the mayor would be supportive of him, Zahn, receiving $40 million. Uh, we knew that that testimony we knew some of that testimony was coming because of some hearings that had been held over the summer. Uh, an FBI agent had summarized uh, that that story, but did not include the detail about the mayor being supportive of this of this arrangement. Um, and for obvious reasons, that was a very provocative statement. The mayor has never been linked to the what is really the heart of this criminal case, um, and so. Yeah, it was it was a surprising thing. I, I have not been surprised uh, in this case for for a long time, but that was that was definitely a moment. And so, Nate, you reached out to the mayor after that hearing concluded. Um, what did he say to you? He uh, he had a very uh, brief statement, but but very flatly um, denied it. Said that that simply did not happen. Um, and and by by that I mean not that. The witness's testimony was wrong, but that he did not was never supportive of uh, Zahn receiving a, a large payout like that. And so, how does this play into the government's larger case? Um, and and how does it figure into the way that they're going to introduce other witnesses about you know what went into the mechanism of this alleged fraud? Yeah, so I mean, really, the heart of the case is an accusation that Don and Ryan Wanamaker, the, the agency's former CFO, secretly conspired to skim profits off the top of a sale. 
the way that they did this, again, allegedly, is by creating this this opaque and, and sort of complicated uh, employee incentive program. And they they lied to the board about its details. They they concealed its potentially lucrative nature from the board. Uh, and so testimony like what we saw on Wednesday will be important for the government's case because it establishes uh, or kind of purports to establish that Zahn had an expectation of a large payout. Um, this conversation happened uh, it, earlier in the summer before, uh, in, in 2019, before uh, he and his executive team had, had actually taken that that incentive program in front of the board and before he had actually even asked the board to authorize him to, to put JDA up for sale. So it's it's an important kind of uh, touchstone for the government to, to show the jury that you know, look, this guy had an expectation of a large payout. And so regardless of whether the mayor actually knew about it, which was the new testimony this week, the story really for from the prosecutor's perspective is that they're saying that Zahn made that, you know, made that statement. And, you know, that's the testimony that will matter in terms of their showing that he had a knowledge of and an expectation of of making a huge windfall. Right. The the detail about you know the mayor being supportive is is an interesting detail, um, and you know the prosecutor during the testimony on Wednesday kind of paused on that note for a moment and and had the the witness sort of commit that that was in fact their memory. Uh, but it's also not a detail that is critical to the prosecution's case at all. That they have never accused the mayor of wrongdoing. Um, as I said at the outset, that there's never been any kind of evidence linking the mayor to this this incentive program. And so it was it kind of chalked up as an interesting, you know, disclosure uh, for, for the public to kind of learn about. But it, that particular detail is not important for the, the federal case at all. Well, Nate Monroe, thank you uh, always for your reporting and insights. And thanks for joining us briefly this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Rich Donnelly, you were also in the courtroom when this exchange happened. Tell us a little bit about what you saw and what you've learned since. What was fascinating to me was that the government introduced that witness, Stephen Amder, as Aaron Zahn's college roommate at Yale. So this was not just a lawyer at a consulting firm who was going to be directly involved in the sale of JEA, but someone who had known Aaron Zahn for decades. Um they graduated in 2001, around that time. So this was not just a handshake agreement between two people who had met just a month or two prior. They had history together. Uh, that was fascinating to me. Um, it, and as Nate pointed out, Lenny Curry is not one of the defendants in this case. And this news is salacious to us in Jacksonville because, you know, the former mayor, that comes with a big oomph factor, if you will. But as Nate pointed out, that detail is not necessarily going to make or break the prosecution's case in this. Uh, what was fascinating to me were some of the other issues that were brought up, the different consulting firms. A woman named Elizabeth Colombo is an attorney with Nixon Peabody who did a lot of you know, legal work for JEA or was contracted to do that. They initially went to her to draft this like incentive program, and her testimony said, that she wasn't comfortable doing that for a variety of reasons. One, she thought it would be illegal in the state of Florida to do so. Uh, Nixon Peabody based out of New York City. 
Um, but also she thought it was wrong that the incentive program would be started by the executives who would directly benefit from it. So she thought there was a lot of just conflict within that program itself. So she ultimately just did not draft it. And that was her testimony. Other testimony from, um, different witnesses, one by the name of David Wathen from Willis Towers Watson out of Atlanta. They were brought in after Nixon Peabody said, we, we can't do this, to draft the long-term incentive program. And what his testimony was fascinating, he said that he got to the point where they drafted the proposal, but never submitted a final proposal to the JEA board. And the draft was created in March of 2019. He said that he sent the JEA executives, Zahn and Wanamaker specifically, a PowerPoint document that could be edited. And that was the end of his involvement. And not that he was morally against it. He said his company deals with creating incentive programs. That's what they do. So they would find whatever, you know, loopholes or things. That's their, their prerogative. But he said not until media reports surfaced in 2020 about this bonus program with the Willis Towers Watson logo on a PowerPoint presented to the JEA board in June of 2019, did he even realize that it would be presented? He thought it was just sort of dead and over when he did not submit a final product. So to me, a lot of the issue here goes multiple layers of fraud. It seems that according to the evidence that the government is presenting, Zahn and Wanamaker were committing fraud against people that they hired to help them commit fraud. Sylvia Perry, I want to ask you about the something that Rich alluded to or mentioned was that the person that was hired to um, be, you know, helping to build this representation for JEA in this case was actually Aaron Zahn's former college roommate, which I think is a raises questions unto itself about how somebody gets a contract, how somebody's hired or chosen, and whether there's favoritism involved. Well, collusion and nepotism is no stranger to big business. And I think that this case is just another systemic example of, of privatization of our governmental policies and, and what is meant to look after us. You think about when uh, our current state of the jail, the jail has privatized it, its health care system, and now people are dying because we are losing that overall regulation of it. So there definitely needs to be more oversight as to who does what. Like Rich said, the board was even defrauded of information and proper information. So maybe for our public entities, there needs to be a deeper dive. And Tim, I, I saw you nodding over there while Rich was talking. Obviously, this kind of um, information isn't entirely new to you, but you recognize the pattern. Well, I find it interesting because there's basically two different things going on here. There's the the thing that really galvanized the community was the, the idea of selling JEA. People are opposed to that. People would have been opposed to that even if there wasn't this long-term incentive plan. Um, so it's kind of a, a two different tracks of things you can get angry about. You can get angry about um, maybe, maybe more tracks. You can get angry about the sale itself. You can get angry about um, it being done fraudulently. And then you get into all the political stuff, which, you know, as, as has been said, is not necessarily the core of the things, but it's just kind of a gloss after people are angry anyway. And Alexandra, the concern about the mayor's involvement in this um, sale process always was that it seemed to be happening secretly, you know, kind of publicly saying, I'm not advocating for a sale. It's all going to happen as it as it will. 
based on, you know, what the community decides or what the board decides. Um, but he also, when a lot of these revelations of alleged fraud and the very high cost of this um, benefit plan were coming out, he put his foot on the accelerator and said, let's get this done. We've got to, you moved up the timeline for the, you know, determining if the intention to negotiate process was going to go forward. And so I, I, that is, I think that what lingers when people think about this issue, even though he may have not have had any connection to the, to the lucrative benefit retirement plan. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, something else that's interesting about it is that uh, they had an extra $10 million that they were going to be trying to give in payouts um, to other people who are part of the sale. So obviously it was the $40 million at the top with Zahn, but I do wonder how deep it was going to go with how many people were involved in colluding on this one. And there has been testimony. I mean, these Castigar hearings went over the summer. These are all these pretrial um, hearings that are releasing a lot of information, Alexandra. And one of the things that did come out was uh, other board members, um, other executives testifying, including Melissa Dykes, who isn't charged, um, but she's the former uh, CEO um, and CFO. And she uh, was aware of the, you know, the value of this pulp plan, of this payout plan. Um, so there were other people that seemed in line to make some serious money. Yeah, absolutely. And so, Tim, um, your thoughts about big picture. Does this uh, revelation that came out this week matter to the people of Jacksonville? I don't know if people who are, you know, who have been years angry about the idea of selling JEA, angry about what feels like a um, politically driven behind closed doors, a bunch of people get rich sort of thing, if people can get angrier. I mean, to, to a certain extent, I, I'm you talk to people who care about this sort of thing, they still care. But I, I think the, the general population probably, you know, is just glad that the utility wasn't sold and to some extent has moved on. We're talking about uh, JEA, but we're also going to be talking shortly about the fire at the Doro. We're going to be talking about the ouster of the city's housing chief. Um, we'd love to hear from you. You can join our conversation by calling 549-2937. That's actually a 904-549-2937 now as of this week. Um, you can also email us at WJCT uh, at First Coast Connect at WJCT.org. You can also reach out on Instagram or Facebook. And you can also watch our program live stream now if you want to. It's on Facebook and the WJCT YouTube page. Um, so, Rich, the way this case is unfolded, um, it's really unusual with these extensive pretrial hearings that we get a glimpse into the prosecution's case um, what they plan to bring, does that give an advantage in some ways to the defense and their foreknowledge, or is the understanding that they will have all of that information anyway? It's just the public that's learning about this. I think certainly from a public perspective, we are getting a sneak peek, a soft opening, if you will, to what the trial is and entails. And certainly the it seemed like the bombshell report about the conversation with Amder and Zahn about Lenny Curry's potential involvement. And to be fair, I reached out to the mayor as well, and he responded, that did not happen, quite simply. So if we take him at his word for it, but also presume that these witnesses are not going to perjure themselves in federal court, something happened. At least the phone call between Amder and Zahn happened, if we believe this witness and his testimony. Um, but it is just fascinating to see... What struck me about the defense in their cross-examination of all the federal witnesses on Wednesday was that they were so intent on 
were any of these witnesses swayed by media reporting on this? Uh, and they actually specifically brought up and pointed out Nate Monroe in the courtroom multiple times to different witnesses. And do you follow Nate Monroe on Twitter was a conversation and a question that multiple witnesses were asked. Um, and many of these witnesses were brought in that day because they're out of town witnesses and had to fly in. And they just, the both the defense and the prosecution and the judge agreed, let's help these people who are flying in coordinate with their schedules just so we can get everything on one day. But many of the out-of-town witnesses, no, I, I don't follow Jacksonville local media. No, I did not watch Channel 12 or Channel 4 during coverage. I live in New York City. We don't get that channel, was a lot of the response. But I'm curious to know what the defense's overall strategy is because a witness testimony, I find it hard to believe that that would be, if there are factually based things that happened in 2019 that they're just recounting, I find it hard to believe that those factual pieces of information could be swayed by media coverage more than a year later. It strikes me that they're almost trying to dig into a potential jury pool in advance of the trial, if if that is what their main defense happens to be. And to be fair, I was not present during any defense witnesses specifically. I don't I don't know if any have been brought up at this time. Neither Zahn nor Wanamaker took the stand at any time while I have been in federal court for this mm-hmm. case. Um, and Sylvia Perry, there are witnesses that are being called before um, this these hearings and will be called at trial. Um, people like uh, the Reverend Fred Newbill, who was on the JEA board when this happened. Um, also, I believe Chair April Green was testified. She was also this, there right? on Wednesday. Is, is there um, a sense by people who are prominent, respected members of the community that they're being kind of dragged through this, you know, uh, potentially reputational, you know, tarnishing because of what happened at JEA. Well, we know about those that do resign from boards. The going gets tough. But in thinking about especially Reverend Newbill and Mrs. Green, it's, uh, again, as Tim has said, when you have defrauded someone and you're responsible for this entity, you can't be held responsible. I think overall the general public really kind of let JEA do it, do what it does. However, when it comes to a point where you hear about your electric bill going up, then all of a sudden everybody takes an interest while the employees and the those in administration are receiving billions of dollars in incentives. So now it matters. And yes, now people will be held accountable. And Alexandra, in terms of the oversight that a board gives, um, you know, this was a board that was asked to vote on this PUP plan, this this lucrative benefit plan at the same time that they were authorizing a sale of the utility. Um, really complicated stuff all at one meeting. Um, and, you know, whether they had the information they needed, I mean, clearly they didn't have the full picture because it wasn't presented to them in terms of what it could cost. Um, but is, is there a sense that, a you know, a board that serves in this capacity is capable of really threading through the information as needed um, and, and going beyond what's just provided to them by the executives that are proposing it? Uh, yeah, I think that there were, I think it's a good thing that people were paying attention to it, that Nate Monroe was paying attention to it and that others were um, following the board and seeing what what was being presented to everybody because I think the general public doesn't have the knowledge of what's going on, doesn't have the time to look into what's going on. And we could have seen something really bad happen with the sale of JEA had um, there not been people who were watching out for it. I mean, it really does speak to the value of local journalism, certainly. And, and Tim, what do you think about that? I mean, in terms of board oversight and how much 
do you hold them responsible for what happened? It's interesting. Having covered, you know, the airport authority and the port authority and JTA and all, all of these entities that have independent boards, in some ways, I think it's too easy to give them a pass. You know, quite frankly, they are the people who are put in those positions to oversee the professionals who are, who are running the organizations. Uh, on the other hand, they the boards don't necessarily know anything about the details of the thing. They're, they're volunteer positions. You know, they're, they're usually people who care about the community, but don't necessarily have an in-depth knowledge of how a utility should function. So it, it it's easy probably for an executive, you know, I, I think, I remember, you know, when you covered the port stuff and there, there was a, a scandal out there, same sort of thing. You're a board member who's like, yeah, they gave me the document. It looked okay to me because what do they know? So. Yeah. And I mean, when you have the, what is being alleged in this case, um, you know, at documents that have the imprimatur of a legitimate bank or a legitimate, you know, financial advising company that have been doctored, there really is no way to... Right. At some point you go, you know, the, the board's not supposed to be doing forensic accounting before they vote. Uh, we've got a call, Dave. Uh, good morning, Dave from Jacksonville. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. First, I just wanted to say thank you to Nate, if he's still on the line, for... Um, his just persistent coverage of the scandal and, and bringing it forward. I don't, I don't think we would know any of the, the real details without, without the hard work that he put in. Um, but I, quick comment, and, and, and that is that a lot of, in hindsight, a lot of the investigation seems to be revealing more things about the activities of Florida Power and Light in the state of Florida, and it's very consistent with with scandals being found in other parts of Florida with dark money with FPNL and also the um, trying to to uh, privatize municipal utilities. So I, I just wanted to see if there was a trend or if, or if um, your panel might comment on potentially a direction of a, uh, more investigations as the FBI investigates this case. Thanks, Dave. I mean, one thing that has been emerging in recent weeks was, you know, the question of this new legislation that was raised in Tallahassee. It was brought up last year as well, which would possibly, you know, make the the purchase of a private utility more feasible by devaluing it, um, by limiting how much money a municipal utility can give to the city that it's in. So if, you know, you're not getting money from that cash cow, how much is it really worth? Maybe you should sell it. Um, we covered that on First Coast Connect, and um, it's an issue that people have said maybe it's, you know, starting down in Jupiter, which is where Next Era and FPL is based. Um, certainly, local lawmakers here, Rich, have seen it as a continuing effort to undermine the community value of JEA and make it a more re reasonable sale when you're telling the community about it. Well, and Matt Carlucci told one of our reporters, Andrew Badillo, that exact situation. Um, when that law was proposed in the legislature to allow or limit how much money a public utility could donate back to the city. Or a municipal utility. Municipal utility, right. excuse me. Thank you. Um, and Councilman Carlucci said that he and Mayor Donna Deegan's staff worked with local legislators to make sure that JEA was excluded from that type of legislation. Um, so at least in the short term, the city of Jacksonville will not be lumped in with that should that become law and go forward. Um, I do want to go back to the board issue that we were talking about just for a second. It seemed like there was a lot of pre-PR work done, according to the testimony by both Zahn and Wanamaker, to sort of scare the board into 
finding that the sale would be the best call. Yeah. Uh, multiple witnesses said that the first tact was to say, if we go down our current path, 30% of JEA workforce will be eliminated and rates for customers will rise 26%. Sure. That was and a huge to portion Sylvia's of their point, sale tactic. All of a sudden, and to Tim's point as well, the dollars and cents at home as just someone who wants to turn their lights on and make sure the refrigerator works, you're going, well, I don't want to pay 26% more for that. And then the employees go, well, I want to keep my job. Okay. So that option's off the table. Then what? So I wonder if they were positioning themselves for this well before everything blew up. Sure. Yeah. And I think they were promising payouts to the community as well. We've got a call, Daryl in St. Augustine. Good morning, Daryl. Yeah, I want to uh, uh, comment the same thing. I don't think Nate Monroe should ever pay another electric bill while he lives in Jacksonville. Um, he has done and saved every citizen in Duval County thousands of dollars. And, you know, um, it's, it's everybody, everybody bashes the media, but this is an example of where the media did a great job. And I just wanted to thank all of you for staying on this story. I wish there were a thousand more of you for the other thousand stories that are out there just like this. Right on. Thanks, Daryl. Appreciate the call and the feedback. So jury selection starts in that case. February 15th, we'll continue to follow it. But let's move on right now to another huge headline, one that literally dominated the skyline of Jacksonville this week. Uh, Sylvia, when we drove to work Monday morning, the sky was full of smoke. How shocking was it to see a building that's on, on the brink of occupancy um, destroyed in just a matter of hours? I have to tell you, that's absolutely incredible. We're just not used to seeing major catastrophes here in Jacksonville. So when you see something like that, it's like, oh, my God, what's happening? Henny penny, the sky is falling. But I, I must commend the um, the mayor and the city working together to have swift action on this, I, I know when we had the tragedy at Berkman Plaza, we looked at the building for years, despite somebody having lost their life. So uh, commendation to our city, making sure not only our air is safe, but that no water is dripping into the toxic waters dripping into our river. Alexandra, this was um, obviously shocking and, you know, devastating for the company that has spent the last couple of years and $60 million um, erecting the structure. Um, what is the next step? Like, what are we going to be seeing happen um, it, 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 this morning even? It sounds like the demolition has, has gotten underway. Okay, well, that part's news to me. I did know that they were planning on demolishing this morning, uh, but last night they were still putting out a couple hot spots, so I wasn't sure if that was going to be able to go through or not. Um, obviously, this is devastating to the company. Uh, they have promised that they want to rebuild there, which was a little bit shocking to me after such a loss of um, time and money. They were already behind schedule because I believe they were supposed to open in the summer of 2023. So I guess we'll have to wait and see um, what their rebuild plans look like after a demolition. And Tim Gibbons, this is um, in many ways a business story, right? Uh, I mean, now that the fire's out, what happens next? And how much of a blow is this to the redevelopment effort of sort of this area of downtown that we're in. So it feels like a huge blow, but I think it's a, a huge blow in the short term. And, and a lot of it um, will end up being what does Rise do next? You know, if the building is demolished and they rebuild, if it rises from the ashes, um, you know, then then it's just, a, a, it's actually probably a, a good story in a way. You know, Rise is really committed to Jacksonville. They moved their headquarters here from Valdosta, Georgia, a couple of years ago. They have multiple other apartment projects in the area. So They've shown a commitment to the community, and they've said they want to rebuild. So I think in some ways that sets the stage. If they do that, it's actually, I mean, I don't think it's a good thing for downtown this happened, but 
but something good can come out of this. We spoke to a local structural engineer, uh, Ron Woods, about how long the surrounding businesses will be impacted. They are actually going to be impacted until those walls come down. There are some ways that they can essentially protect the other buildings. They can also do some selective dismantling before they start demolishing the whole thing. That would take away the the obvious issues of a fall zone, for instance. You've got essentially seven stories of wall up there, and the fall zone is going to be that far out at least. Now, Rich, I uh, spoke to a tenant of the Southmore building. That's that kind of iconic red, uh, excuse me, white building with the green roof that's right next to the baseball grounds. They're closed. Um, manifest Distillery, Intuition still closed. So, um, and those, like as he said, that's because those are currently in the fall zone. So how does this impact local businesses? What are they thinking is the timeline for their, you know, being able to start getting back to work? Well, based on our reporting from earlier this week, I think the fact that demolition has begun today or no, was slated to begin today is good news for them in the sense of physically getting back in. Uh, multiple owners of those businesses told us they weren't allowed inside. I think the owner of Manifest Distilling was briefly allowed in on Monday just to look inside, but he was with firefighters just to make sure things were structurally okay at that time, but have not been allowed inside since. And it, my heart goes out to businesses like Intuition who are actually dealing with perishable goods. I mean, we think of beards in cans, but there are in vats. They do have to be tended to. So for a week now, or almost a week, they couldn't actually deal with the product that they're making. I mean, I realize that that is secondary compared to people's homes who were slated to move in this week or March 1st. But there is tangible goods that are going to have to be thrown away potentially from all of this, aside from the fact of, okay, as a seven-story building comes down, does everything still stay in place? You know, does do their businesses have any effect at all? So I'm sure that the demolition crew, we're not going to have the big implosion like we saw with Berkman too, which also the juxtaposition of a celebration of bringing a building down versus now, a true somber of what could have been a launching point because, you know, hundreds of neighbors were going to be moving into that area of town and flooding that area with new business. You know, people would be able to walk to intuition from literally 50 feet away, door to door. And now for those businesses, you're losing a significant potential customer base for however many years it might take to rebuild. So we're talking about the fire at Rise Doro. We're also going to be talking about the ouster of the city's housing chief in just a bit. If you want to join the conversation, you can give us a call at 904-549-2937. You can also reach us via email at firstcoastconnect.wjct.org. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram. You can watch our live stream right now on Facebook or YouTube. Um, we've got a question from Eugene. He said, has any thoughts from the has any thought from the developer or the city when it comes to the demolition of the building? What about the utilities that are still in good use? Can it be uh, used for a donation or in an estate sale? I mean, we've actually been wondering about that around the office. This is a luxury building, um, high-end everything. Um, is is there any chance that anything salvageable, Sylvia, when a fire like that uh, and the water that has been pummeling that building for days now, um, is there any chance of salvaging it? I'm not even I mean, it doesn't sound like it's structurally safe to even check. Exactly. I know when I was watching on the news this morning, you could literally see, you know, all of the high-end appliances just, just standing there. But I 
personally can't speak to that, but I would wonder about getting something that has been, you know, filled with smoke and water, X, Y, Z, and then the liability that would come to that if they were even to try and do that. It's yeah, cheaper to take an insurance loss and to the, get something. The, the water is actually a big part of that. I mean, obviously the fire is what, what destroyed the building, but there was so much water pumped into that that, um, you know, both from a structural standpoint and everything in the building, it was just deluged and, uh, you know, it is, it is basically a total write-off. And the water is a concern in other ways, too, right? So they're spraying this building uh, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water over, you know, four days, really. Um, and so everything that's burning in that building, including electronics, uh, you know, all of the plastics, all of the, um, you know, materials that go into constructing a building like that are rushing, you know, running off. I mean, I, the good news is they didn't have to use any firefighting foam. Um but Alexandra, they're they're also going to be have to be monitoring water quality to make sure that you know that, that the river and oh is it Mount McCoy's Creek? What's the one that's right? Hogan's Creek is not you know really impacted by the pollution. Yeah, I think we're going to be um, following this for a while, even with the fire out and the demolitions scheduled to take place very quickly. I think there could be longer lasting impacts from this fire that we haven't yet seen or thought about. Yeah, and Rich, um, I'm curious because you back right up to it. Um, and, and I noticed that First Coast News crews were kind of like within that perimeter in a way that maybe others weren't privy to. But was the building that you were in impacted? Was it Were you guys ever having to evacuate? As, as far as I know, we have not been told any type of evacuation orders. Um, and nothing has rumbled, you know, so to speak. I don't want to make too much light of a situation. But as far as we know, our building is completely structurally sound. I will say that there are two parking lots at First Coast News, a front parking lot and a back parking lot. The back parking lot backs up to a Philip Randolph Boulevard, the side where Doro and intuition, all that. Um, the front parking lot has been significantly more full with cars over the last <laughs> week. I, I, I presume that a lot of people made a point to not park in the back parking lot for a variety of reasons. Um, but we have not been told that there's any structural issue to our building or any worry about potential structural issues, at least as far as I'm aware of. And in terms of, the reason that this building burned so quickly, Sylvia, part of it is because it was a wood constructed building, um, which is cheaper, but comes with certain risks um, when it comes to fire. Do you think people look at this building, kind of how it burned so thoroughly and kind of without being able to be stopped and have concerns about the buildings that they live in, which are also very often wood constructed buildings? I've, uh, you know, th this is another case, I think, of people are just not concerned about something until it affects them. You know, if they were to have built the um, Rise Doral with cement pilings XYZ, the cost would have been substantially higher. The same with our homes. A house that you pay $300,000 for would have been 750000 to be structurally safe. So as long as you can get what you want for the bang for the buck, people are not concerned with that. The goal is just to stay safe. Stay safe. Toss on one note. So, so five over one, five over one buildings, which is this type of construction, concrete podium with wood on top of it, are are known to have issues with fires during construction, but not afterwards. So, you ah. know, the, the the safety issue of when the firefighters talk about the voids, when they talk about things not being sealed, all of that's during construction. So, they're it's an issue when they're being built, but they're not particularly unsafe afterwards. So if you live in a building like this, you should not look at this and go, oh, well, I'm going to burn to death. So Yeah. And there were voids, but I mean, at the same time, there was only a, a couple of days before people were scheduled to move in. I there mean, were, it was a fairly finished building. It was, but the sprinkler system wasn't on and some of the um, fire doors 
weren't installed and basically all of that safety stuff that the fire marshal requires because otherwise you know people burn you know die in fires um was not done yet so we've got a call jason from san marco good morning welcome to first coast connect good morning and thank you for having me uh you know this this disaster that has befallen downtown with the fire at the rise doro building it has a lot of unanswered questions and my principal comment is how could a company that's putting up a 60 plus million dollar development not have on the weekends in downtown jacksonville with all the transients and homeless people we have not have 24-hour security from the end of business on Friday to the start of business on Monday, which had they have one person down there, and these people cost 18 to $25 an hour. That could have been a couple thousand dollars they spent that would have saved them $60 million. And I'm just flabbergasted, and I really would like to hear from the, the people who run this building about what kind of security was in place to prevent interlopers and transients from getting into the building. And I would love to know, and I'm sure you'll follow up with, what actually caused this fire? As I understand, we don't know. And I've heard crazy things from, oh, it could have been a lithium battery that was being charged that went haywire to, you know, they sent some people in there to get warm because it was a cold Sunday night. They started a fire and it brought down the structure. So thanks, my basic- thanks Jason. I appreciate it. I mean, I don't think that there's any, um, I haven't heard any evidence that there was anybody inside the building, Rich, that this was started, you know, by someone who is, you know, staying in that building. It was a pretty secure building. From from everything we understand, and I do understand the caller's idea that sometimes vacant buildings, you know, someone going inside making a fire. From everything we understand, that was not the case because I believe, and everything's still under investigation at this point. We, we have not received a, you know, report on what caused the fire. So it's still to be determined at this point. But from everything I've read, it started between like floors six and seven higher up in the building. And I would just presume that if someone was going into a building to get warm, they wouldn't go five floors, six floors up to do so. Again, everything's still under investigation, so I don't want to go too far into that. But um, there seems to have been security footage inside that will be part of the investigation to determine if potentially some type of construction equipment was on. As far as I know, there was no lightning in the area that night, so I don't believe it could have been a random lightning strike. But right. again, an investigation is still to determine what caused that fire? Yeah, I, I mean, as far as I understand, it's not clear to me, and I've reached out to the um, to the fire department to ask about it. I mean, the, the investigation still underway. It's not really clear yet how that investigation will continue or if it could be impacted by the demolition as it begins. Um, but that's, that's a, it, you know, it is going to be, for insurance companies, Tim, that's what they want to know, right? That's the answer that they want to get. It is. Now, th- this is slightly different in that Rise owns its own construction company, so it's not that you have a developer and a construction company who would otherwise be embroiled in a lawsuit. But there are subcontractors involved. Um, my understanding is that there is some disagreement between the city and and the developer over how quickly this demolition should take place, um, with the developer wanting more answers. The typical thing you would see in a case like this is you'd pull a demo permit, but the, the investigation would continue until the fire marshal signs off on the investigation, you wouldn't begin the demolition. In this case, there's the issue of the surrounding businesses, there's the issue of public safety, so the city has pushed for it to be done sooner, but but there is some disagreement there over um, how much of the building you should take down before you know exactly what happened. 
Well, we're going to move on. Um, the climate for trans people in the Sunshine State is growing increasingly unpleasant. Another state agency this week questioning the legitimacy of individuals' gender identity. The Florida Department of Highway Safety and Motor Vehicles issued a memo last Friday, a week ago, requiring that the gender listed on a person's driver's license match their birth sex. Um, Alexandra, the DMV letter says the gender is equivalent to, uh, of, of, quote, um, what is determined by innate and immutable biological and gene genetic characteristics. Did you ever think that we'd be hearing DMV opining about the fundamental markers of human identity? I definitely did not think the DMV would be weighing in on this one. Um, the memo also mentioned that uh, putting your non-biological gender is a misrepresentation and called it a criminal and possibly civil fraud, which I found really interesting that the DMV is um, trying to say that misrepresenting yourself on your license or changing something on your license is a civil fraud. Um, it makes me wonder if, like, I dyed my hair, would I have to go get my license updated because my license says brown hair? If I'm blonde, am I committing a civil fraud? Like, it's just a little bit of a silly question for the DMV to be weighing in on, I think. Yeah, or if you lie about your height, uh, Rich, maybe you're going to get dinged. I, I um, uh, This rescinds an earlier DMV policy, which is, I think, what is you know so confusing for people. It was <clears throat> in 2018, they created a policy that allows people to alter the, their uh licenses if they have a signed statement from physicians or a court order documenting their gender changes. And so it wasn't a policy that didn't have some teeth in it. There, People couldn't kind of willy-nilly change, but they were allowed to change um, if that was the identity that accorded with how they lived their life. Well, and also what about people who are moving to the state of Florida and may have had any procedure or life change prior to coming here? The DMV is not opening up medical offices to examine people upon switching in their driver's licenses when they move here from a different state. So I, I question how this is actually going to come about, because if you move from Maryland, just to pick a state out of random, and you're a trans person and identified in Maryland as such, and whatever is on your license, when you turn your license in to Florida to get a new one, what type of medical documentation would you need to present other than just, no, I filled the form out. Do we have to take everyone, you know, beyond it? It strikes me as a level of overreach that is just odd. But maybe not unique, Sylvia. So this is not the only state agency that has weighed in and issued new trans guidelines. The State Department of Education now bans kids from using the bathroom of their gender identity. They're banning discussions. Teachers can't use their chosen pronoun. Um, the State Department of Health is now advising against, you know, gender affirming care. The Department of Corrections will no longer pay for people who are you know, using hormones while they're in custody. So why is the state so interested in this issue, these various agencies in this one particular issue? I think that um, we're following the line of our current government, who has definitely streamlined to more conservative values for the state. You know, but but in plain devil's advocate, you look at your driver's license, let's say that you identify as a, a, a man, you identify as a woman, you get taken to jail. What is a, a, a person with female parts, what's going to happen to her? to that person in a prison, a male prison, and who has the duty of care to be responsible for them. So it, it really weighs a, a sense of balance between what the, the church, I mean, what the state is trying to do to protect itself and what we want as a preference and identity for ourselves. And Tim, um, ultimately, this is being pushed by, you know, a conservative majority in the legislature kind of backing these bills, including our own Dean Black. Yeah, it's interesting, and you you mentioned the uh, bathroom bills in, in schools, and it, it 
makes me think of a, you know, a couple years ago when that entire conversation started and I was actually sitting here on First Coast Connect and a teacher called up and was like, you know that for like six years, kids could use whatever bathroom in school, you know, match their, their gender identity and there wasn't any problem. And I think that's one of the aggravating or challenging things about some of these culture war issues. In none of this conversation has the DMV said, here's where a problem happened. Right. They're changing this, but it's been years that this has been the policy. Point to the problem. Then maybe there needs to be a solution. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. It's time now for our lightning round. I'm going to start with you, Tim. Affordable housing. So uh, Jacksonville Business Journal has taken a look at some of the things being done on that front. I think it's one of the, the biggest issues facing the First Coast in the year ahead and uh, you know, trying to see what needs to be done. No question. Alexandra, what's on your plate? Um, there's a lot on my plate, but right now I've been <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so mostly the fire. Um, but right now I've been very interested in the jail recording its first death um, of 2024, which happened earlier this week. And Nicole Manna wrote about it for the Jack's tributary. Yeah, that's an ongoing issue. Rich, what's up with you? Two big events um, near and dear to me this coming Saturday. Uh, the Pediatric Cancer Research Organization Fourth and Gold is holding a kickball tournament at Palmetto Park uh, in the Mandarin area. They raise tens of thousands of dollars for pediatric cancer research. Also a first of its kind for Baker County. There's a military and veterans resource fair for people uh, looking for financial health and career advice. Excellent. And Sylvia, what's, what are you looking at? It's February 2nd. This is the beginning of black history month. This is something that used to be on the mainstream of everybody's forefront. And now you hardly ever hear anything about it. So my medium is all about empowering and engagement. What you can't, you can't be what you can't see. So Excellent. Well, I want to, I'm just looking at a 25th anniversary of Jackrabbits in San Marco. They got a great lineup of shows, including one of my favorites, Chad Jasmine. Um, So that is uh, something that I'm celebrating. Um, I want to thank you all for being here. Uh, Sylvia, Rich, Tim, Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us and stick around. We'll be right back with your fast pass to Saturday night's most chill lounge. Congaree Pen, dedicated to agriculture and culinary endeavors, offering field-to-fork dining and outdoor experiences on over 300 acres. Sip, dine, explore. Information at congareeandpen.com. Wayne Hogan of the Terrell Hogan Personal Injury and Wrongful Death Law Firm. Serious injury cases are complex, and civil trial attorneys present the evidence juries need to see and hear. More at waynehogan.law.
Senators take the world's tech titans to task. I know you don't mean it to be so, but you have blood on your hands. Congress moves ahead with a new tax deal, but border talks come undone. And Elmo reminds us how important it is to ask, how are you doing? That and much more on the Friday News Roundup, next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Let's get lost, lost in each other's arms. Let's get lost, let them send out alarms. And though they'll think us rather rude, let's tell the world we're in that crazy mood. Let's defrost in a romantic mist Let's get crossed off everybody's list To celebrate this night we found each other mm. Let's get lost Let's get lost That's the incredible Chet oh, Baker Don't we love him? Wow. I'm I'm joined now by David Luck and host of the Electro Lounge, and it's that kind of music that pe that people tune in for. As well as the new music, and that's why I like to remind people with the Electro Lounge is music without walls. It's from Willie Nelson to Chet Baker to Black Opry. I but, just love music. So Chet Baker in particular inspires the best? you. For he, he did, and now I open each show. I say, welcome to the Electro Lounge, and now let's get lost. So that's from tomorrow night's program. That's how we open the show. I thought we'd play what's freshest. And also to illustrate that we just love music. There's no genre that we're going to play. We're going to play them all. The history of Electro Lounge, I mean, it's been around now for a couple of decades. 20 years. 20 years. And so, but it's kind of back now, right? It took a hiatus for a little Yeah, while. with COVID and, and we, we moved most of our music, all of our music to our HD channels to give everyone one-stop one shopping. And we, we converted this to all news which was a good thing to do. And then COVID came along and the show got bumped to 10 o'clock. And then so a, a lot of uh, changes, but we are so happy to be back on Saturday nights because of what you do and what NPR does with feed us so much great information and, and just sometimes overload that Saturday nights, you can try and chill out and uh, not forget the news you learn, but kind of escape it for a little bit. And you have been, and you're a news lover, but you're Absolutely. a longtime music lover. And I, you were telling me the other day as a kid that, Kind of no matter how broke you were, you would always find a yeah, dime my, for the jukebox. My, my brother and I traveled. I will just put it there when we were young, younger than 18. And we would end up in strange cities and we would go to the restaurant. And my brother would buy, you know, coffee and toast and eggs. And I would buy toast and marmalade and put a dime in the jukebox and go buy a newspaper. And it always aggravated him that I wasn't spending my money on donuts. I was spending my money on newspapers. And music. And music. So nothing really changes. We, we don't change that. I haven't changed that much. My love is still music and news and, and as a kid i mean you always loved music what was your first concert that you went to i went to see and you got the poster here herman's hermits the who and the blues magoos in 1966 believe it or not and we went in singing mrs brown you've got a lovely daughter and we came out after the who smashing all their instruments singing my generation it, it was an, an awakening it was crazy and we were just speechless watching Peter Townsend smash his guitar on the stage. I was like, wow, can I go home and smash my room now? You were, how old were you? I was about 12. A had you heard of the who before you went? No. Uh, well, yeah, I did because they had magic bus was on the radio, 
but but we were all there because Mrs. Brown and there's a kind of hush and all those pretty little songs that Herman's Hermits did. Uh, it was all part of the British invasion, and <clears throat> it was um, quite the night. It was a great first concert, that's for sure. And you can't see this poster that he brought in, but the Who's not pictured on it. They're not no. given top Third billing. Third build. Yeah. And they closed the show, and for obvious reasons, as we were talking earlier, if they smashed all their instruments, it would have been a half hour to clean up the place for the next band. So I remember it so well, and when we walked out, it was like, wow, okay, that's rock and roll. Yeah, I guess we can hold it up here, actually, because we're on oh, a live oh, stream, oh, sure, so sure. if you want to check it out. Um but this this kind of music, when you went to, the, went to that concert, did it change you in any fundamental way? No, because I was already already crazy about music, and I yeah. like all kinds of music. I, I bought my first jazz album, and it, it, Cannonball Adderley's Greatest Hits. I didn't even know what it was, but it had Mercy, Mercy, Mercy on it from the Buckinghams, a, a big hit. So I ordered it, and that was my first jazz album. And then my brothers all called me David Jazzman after that, because I loved it. I didn't even know what that kind of—well, I mean, I knew Glenn Miller, you know, old-time jazz, but— Cannonball, that was an opening. Yeah, and then through the 70s, of course, with Alice Coltrane, and I, I loved all that spiritual jazz. You go to yoga class and then come home and listen to Farrell Sanders and Alice Coltrane and try and reach a higher place. And, and so you say it's you know music without walls, but you really introduce all kinds of genres. Talk a little yep. bit about how broad the, the palette is. Uh, really, my only criteria is it's nice music. So, so I had someone come up to me once uh, during the heyday of Electro Lounge and said, wow, you played Johnny Cash last night. And I said, yeah, it's just good music. I'll play Willie, too. I just want to play music that helps you uh, learn new music and, and, and escape reality, let's be honest. I mean, that's why 10 o'clock Saturday nights is a great place just to sit back in a lazy boy and forget about the world and just drift off into the music or and, get lost, as I say. Right. And, and Electro Lounge is part of a new uh, kind of triple threat right yeah, on let's Saturday do that. night. And, and boy, am I learning a lot. Hurley Winkler has this brilliant show at eight o'clock called Jack's Music Hour. And I, I love it. Listen every Saturday. And then our, our, our best pal, Al Pete, takes us to the neighborhood and he's doing some great music too. And then I come on and, and, and I'm a kind of a mix of both of them. I've played music that Al's played and Hurley's played and, and just trying to try to cap off the night. So, and here's another thing I need to remind people, all the playlists are online at JME. Uh, jacksmusic.org so you can listen and we link to the music so if you really like something you're going to hear Saturday night you can go on jacksmusic.org and you can find the playlist and chase down that music and buy it or play it and enjoy it and what is what is there a theme overarching theme for these shows what about this week this week is kind of rain and trains and dreams um just because it came out that way we've got uh uh, the Train song by by uh, Feist, and uh, I've actually got this really cool remix of uh, Tony Joe White doing Rainy Night in Georgia, oh. remixed by Buzu Baju, and it is just such a trippy, cool version. So it just turned out a lot of train songs and, and rain songs in this program, but generally there isn't a theme. I just kind of build it out of my head. But here, let me say this. It's always a journey, though, where we start the show and where we end it is totally different. So we opened Saturday Night Show with Chet Baker from the 50s, and we ended with some dreamy music from now. So it's it's all good. Well, great stuff. <clears throat> David Luckin from Electro Lounge, thank you so much for joining us. You got something for us to listen to as we go out? Sure. This is in um, Saturday Show, too. It's by a group called Blue Monk, and it's called Jazz in the Jungle. I really like this. So hopefully Anne will can the credits, and we'll just sit back and listen to this. So enjoy, and thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm just going to say on Monday, join us. We're going to talk with young people invested in Jacksonville's future. I'm Ann Schindler. You've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9.
Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.